We've been talking for several weeks now about what we're calling fundamental truths. And I've suggested to you that there are certain truths that actually form a basis or a foundation for our faith. Three primary ones that we have mentioned thus far in the study. We began with the existence of God. And obviously, if God exists, then everything else hinges upon the directions that He provides to us. And there are certain ways that we can go about arguing for the existence of God and reasoning to the existence of God. We spent some time talking about Jesus the Christ and whether or not He is the Son of the God that exists. And obviously, if it's possible for us to not only prove that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth, but also to examine the claims that he made in light of the evidence that supports them and conclude that he is the Son of God, then you and I have the obligation to fall at his feet and worship him. We have the obligation to be obedient to him. And then the third pillar that we have been discussing for the last couple of weeks is the pillar of the inspiration of Scripture. If there is a God who sent His Son to this earth, then that God would wish to communicate His will to us, and He has indeed done so. And so we've been looking at the concept of inspiration, and then of course not just examining the concept of inspiration itself, but really looking into the question of how we can know that we can trust what the Bible says. What is it that sets the Bible apart from any other book that one might write or any other ancient document that one might study or discover. And as we were thinking about that question last time, we began by looking at the proof of accuracy. And there are a variety of ways in which the accuracy that's found in Scripture serves to support the claim of inspiration, whether we're talking about accuracy in the fulfillment of prophecies, some of which were written 700 years prior to their fulfillment, or accuracy with regard to scientific details that man only later discovered, or we could talk about accuracy in the geographical details of Scripture, or in various other ways. So accuracy is one of the chief proofs for inspiration. But what I want to do tonight in the time that we have is to move on and to consider the final three of these proofs for inspiration that we have listed on the screen behind me. And I'd like to begin by thinking about the concept of unity as it exists in Scripture and how we can see unity to be a proof of the inspiration of the Bible. One of the ways I think that we can look at unity is by considering the structure of the Bible as a whole. And let me explain what I mean by that. Your Bible is a book that is actually a collection of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. The book of Genesis was written by Moses. Moses lived some 1,500 years before uh, the Lord's birth. And the book of Revelation, most scholars believe, was written at the end of the first century. And so we have at least 1,600 years which separate the writing of the book of Genesis from the ending of the book of Revelation. 
And yet, over the span of that 1,600 years, you will find books that were written by individuals from a variety of different backgrounds in a variety of different cultural settings, various places. Some of those authors were highly educated individuals. I believe that we could certainly say that about Moses. He was trained in the greatest academic setting that one could find in ancient Egypt at that time. You could also say that the Apostle Paul was a highly educated individual, trained at the feet of Gabaliel, he tells us. There were others, however, who were not highly trained in an academic field. You have certain individuals in the Old Testament, like David, who was a shepherd boy. Or the prophet Amos, who was, as he said in his own words, a sheep herder from Tekoa, and a farmer of sycamine fruit. Well, he wasn't trained as a scholar. And yet, David and Amos and Moses and Paul could all produce a cohesive work. The structure of Scripture is beyond question. When you look at the Old Testament, you find that the Old Testament anticipates the coming of the Messiah. Emphasis is placed upon how that Messiah will indeed redeem humanity of the role that he will play. When you get to the New Testament, you read the biblical record of that Messiah who has come. There is an identification of him. And then following the death and resurrection of Jesus, the emphasis is upon following the teachings of that Messiah. And so this book, which was written over a period of 1,600 years, could only be produced by divine inspiration. The unity of Scripture helps to support the concept of inspiration. Jesus actually referenced this idea in Luke 24, chapter. Let's look briefly at what's taking place there. In Luke 24, you have Jesus on the very evening of His, or the morning of His resurrection, speaking to individuals who are traveling uh, from Jerusalem to a place called Emmaus. And as they make this journey, as it gets a little closer to the night, Jesus opens their eyes and he reveals to them his identity by talking about all of the things that were written about him in Scripture. A little later on in the chapter, you find that he does the same thing with his apostles. And in verse 44 of the passage that I have listed, he said to the apostles, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Now those three statements, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, were actually references to the three portions of the Hebrew Scriptures. The law, the prophets, and the writings as they were. But Jesus is noting that in those three major portions of the Hebrew Old Testament, that there were prophecies that pointed to His coming. The structure of Scripture is significant. Another quality of unity that we would find to be quite amazing is the unity of the doctrine that exists in Scripture. It's especially interesting to look at the expectations that were given to individuals who lived under the law of Moses. The emphasis that's placed, for example, on the sacrifices that had to be offered in a very precise way, in a very exact way. 
And yet as you move your way toward the New Testament, you find that Jesus, when he's talking about the Old Testament law, says that he did not come to destroy that law, but he came to fulfill it. In what way? Jesus was the fulfillment of that Old Testament law in the sense that he is the very epitome of what the sacrifice should be. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so what we find when we read the New Testament, especially in light of the Old Testament, is that the doctrine that is set forth in the New Testament does not contradict the Old Testament plan, but it fulfills it. And so the Old Testament was indeed a shadow of sorts that would help us to better appreciate and anticipate that which would come later. And there is a precision in the doctrine that is taught. Uh, when you look at Ephesians chapter 4, for example, there's one body and one spirit, just as you're called and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in you all. You see the clarity of the unity that is found in Scripture. And when you study the various writings of individuals, you do not find them disputing the unity that is being advocated. They are all with one accord, if you will, in regard to the teaching. There's also a unity that exists with regard to prophecy. And there's a passage that I'd like to mention to you in this regard tonight. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. One of the things that Deuteronomy 18 is known for is the prophecy about the one who would be like unto Moses. And Peter, when he's preaching in the New Testament, declares that Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. But what Deuteronomy 18 also does is to provide us with some parameters for the truthfulness of the prophet. And what I'd like to do is to look at this chapter beginning in verse 20. Moses writes and he says, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? And this is how Moses answers that question. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord... If the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is, not, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. We could ask the question, how many false prophecies does it take to make one a false prophet? And the answer, of course, is only one. How many false prophecies would it take to discredit the inspiration of Scripture? It would only take one. And yet, the prophecies that we find scattered throughout the course of Scripture all stand firm and true. And the unity of those prophecies, not only their declaration, but the fulfillment of them, serves as a great pillar for the concept of biblical inspiration. As we think about unity, I would add that there is the ethic that is described in Scripture. And in many ways, it is amazing in comparison to the various ethics that are advocated by individuals today. 
you remember, of course, the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' beautiful declaration of the way that we ought to live. We refer to it as the golden rule. We paraphrase it. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's not an ethic that's based on selfishness. It is an ethic that is based on selflessness. And yet, in our society today, we have individuals who are primarily interested in taking care of themselves. And there is a word that is often associated with that. There is an egotistic aspect to that type of approach. And it's just the opposite of what Jesus is calling his followers to do. Uh, then there are others who come along and they try to prescribe a different kind of ethic. They say, well, maybe we need to just do whatever works. If something is uh, successful, that perhaps is the thing that we ought to engage ourselves in. And yet, we ought to ask to the pragmatist, that's the name for that type of behavior, what if what works does a particular harm to someone? Or what if what works actually causes you to violate other principles of truth? Well, someone else might come along and they might say, well, you know, egoism doesn't necessarily seem like the right thing to do, and, and perhaps pragmatism isn't the right approach. Maybe we should do what is best for the greatest number of people. And that concept is known as utilitarianism. We'll do the greatest good for the greatest number. Well, what happens when the greatest good for the greatest number is the benefit to 51 people and harm to 49? Or what happens if one thing would be a greater good for 50 and the other thing would be a great harm to 50? How do you resolve that sort of conflict? Well, Scripture actually helps us in that regard. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 for just a moment. It's amazing the simplicity with which Scripture speaks, and yet the depth that it provides us. Paul, in this section of 1 Thessalonians, where he is giving short, brief imperative commands to the Thessalonian Christians. It says in verse 15, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. That is, don't do unto others as they have done to you. Watch what he says. But always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. The ethic of Christianity isn't a selfish ethic. It's not just about me. It's not just about others. It is about pursuing what is good that will, in essence, be a blessing both to myself and to those around me. And when you read through Scripture from the beginning to the end, you find that that ethical description is presented consistently through it. And so the unity of Scripture stands as a result. You'll also find that there is a soberness to the message of Scripture, that there are not extravagant claims that are made that cannot be substantiated, but that the language is not just precise, but really presented in such a way as to remind people of the things that are most important. And that, I think, is especially significant given the background of the ancient world. That P 
period, particularly in the first century, and especially in the region of Greece, was a world that was well known to the concepts of rhetoric, uh, the idea of speaking with a means of persuasion. Flowery language was often found in the presentations of individuals. And in many cases, uh, those who could gain a greatest, the greatest audience did not do so because they were speaking truth, but because they spoke in a way that entertained the people. Does that sound familiar to a society that we know very well today? Well, the Apostle Paul, in his writing to the Corinthians, reminds them that that was not his approach. That he wasn't trying to compete with the various speakers who were well known in the society of the time. Instead, he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That really does typify the approach that we find in Scripture there is a soberness of tone. So that individuals aren't necessarily impressed with the rhetoric of the one who is speaking or with the writing skills of the one who is writing, but with the message that is being delivered. We're not trying to impress individuals with how much we know or how well we can communicate what we know. Our task is to cause individuals to fall in love with Jesus. If we spend more time trying to win arguments than we do trying to win souls to Christ, we've missed the point. And Paul understood that very well. And so the unity of Scripture helps us to appreciate what it is. And there, of course, is the expression that's commonly used in Scripture. Uh, the language that's used to describe God, for example, is consistent. And sometimes individuals try to argue that that's not the case. And they'll say, well, you know, the God that I read about in the Old Testament seems to be a God of vengeance and justice. And the God that we read about in the New Testament is a God of grace and a God of love. But then you come across a passage like Romans chapter 11 and verse 22, where Paul brings both descriptions of God together as a reminder to the people. He says, therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fail severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will be cut off. You find that in the Old Testament, God is the same God that he is in the New Testament. You can look at his instructions to the children of Israel beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and you will see, you will discover that if they kept his word, if they followed his plan, if they did what he told them to do, blessings awaited. But if they rejected him, if they turned their back upon him, if they did not listen to what he said, there would be punishment. And so I'll suggest to you that the expression that we find in Scripture of the concepts that are primary, of the concepts that are most important, will show us a good deal of unity. And so as we're thinking about proofs for the inspiration of Scripture, I would suggest to you that unity would indeed help 
in that regard. Also, we could talk about the quality of writing. And I just want to mention a few things briefly about Scripture that might be important in this regard. One of the things that you'll notice when you read the Bible is that there is a dramatic form of narration. And by that I mean the authors don't necessarily interrupt the flow of the story to tell you whether what the person is doing is right or wrong. They allow the scene to play out before us. That's important. It's important for a variety of reasons. It's important for us in the New Testament when we're reading about what the early church was doing. Not everything that we find individuals doing in Scripture is worthy of imitation. Uh, Some things are written simply as uh, examples to be avoided, if you will. And so we have to be able to discern whether something is prescriptive, that is, whether it is telling us how we ought to behave, what we ought to do, how we ought to function, or whether it's merely descriptive. And there are examples of both of those. So you find an account, for example, like the betrayal of Jesus in the garden. And we read about Peter being willing to pull out his sword and strike at the ear of the servant of the high priest. And it's only after Jesus steps in and tells him, you put your sword in its place, that we realize that although Peter's actions to us at least seem noble, that was not the Lord's plan. And there is an amazing aspect of this dramatic form of narration. There also is in Scripture an impartiality regarding the facts. And I've always been impressed with this aspect of the writing that we find in Scripture for several reasons, but but one of those is this. Usually people don't like to talk about their shortcomings or their failures. As a matter of fact, I think if you were probably going to write something about yourself, you would perhaps leave the bad parts out. You don't necessarily want others to know about that sort of thing. And yet when we read about the apostles in the New Testament, some of their misdeeds come to the foreground. Uh, For example, you remember Peter, who on the evening of our Lord's betrayal told him that even if the rest of them betrayed him, he would die rather than betraying Jesus. And then we read about how Peter did indeed betray Jesus. And the details are striking. Another aspect of the quality of writing that is so very valuable for us is the brevity. And I say this to remind you of that. You've got your Bible that you have with you this evening that you can easily hold in one hand. And yet this is a book that contains all things that pertain to life and godliness. Whatever struggles we have, whatever difficulties that we're facing, The Bible has the answer to those trials. When John concluded his work at the end of the Gospel of John, he told his audience that there were many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, the world itself could not contain them. Well, why did John select only seven of Jesus' miracles? Or why did John structure his book around seven of Jesus' sayings about himself? Because Scripture through inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, was designed to address the very needs that you and I have. Could other things have been written? Of course they could. 
but the brevity of Scripture helps us to appreciate the inspiration of it. And then, very quickly, there is an assumption of infallibility. When you read about the truth as it is being presented, there is no doubting Peter's message when he's preaching in Acts chapter 2. When the individuals are cut to the heart and they say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter doesn't hesitate. Uh, he says, you repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when you go through the book of Acts from that juncture onward, the message that is being presented to individuals who are asking about salvation is consistent with the message that Peter presents at that juncture. And there's no doubting about that. And there is an assumption of infallibility that the Word of God is being presented, that is being described. So the quality of writing, I think, is a great proof of the inspiration of Scripture. And then very briefly tonight, I wanted to mention one last thing. The relevance of Scripture to today's moment is also a great proof of the inspiration of Scripture. And there are a number of examples, I suppose, that we could consider uh, for just a moment this evening. But let me mention just two or three. I think that you would agree with me when I say that we are living in a very, if not interesting, then at least unique time in world history. It's unprecedented for many of us. Not just with the global pandemic that's taking place in our country, but with the political scene that exists like it does. And as Christians, sometimes we will look at the sorts of things that are happening around us and we'll wonder, what would God have us to do in response? And in every case, we find a definitive answer in Scripture. Now, the Bible doesn't highlight a particular candidate for you. But it does tell you what your attitude toward government ought to be. And it does tell you that you have an obligation to submit to the rule of that government, for it is appointed by God. I would remind you that when Paul wrote Romans chapter 13, the Roman Empire was ruling the known world at that time. It would be very difficult to find a more corrupt system of rulers than those who ruled the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, when the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans, the emperor of Rome was a man named Nero. He is the same individual who fiddled while Rome burned, who blamed Christians for that, and who as a result persecuted Christians significantly and even persecuted the Apostle Paul to his death. And yet Paul, knowing who the emperor was, not only appealed to stand before him and have his case tried there, but writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 13 and says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. There's a relevance that is applicable even to our own situation. 
in the book of 1 Peter, the book that we're reading this month, you find a similar emphasis on the acknowledgement of the governing authorities and of our responsibility toward them. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for a vice, but as bondservants for God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. It's always been interesting to me that individuals think they know what a government ought to do and how a government ought to act. I would remind you that God has described to us the government has two primary roles, two primary functions. It is authorized under God to punish those who do evil, and it is authorized under God to provide praise to those who do good. That is the scope of governmental authority. And we can try to add as many things as we like and say, well, the government ought to do this and this and this, but if it doesn't fall under the scope of what's described in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13 or Romans chapter 13, it's going beyond what God intended for the government to do. I think even in that regard, there is a great relevance for us. And then, uh, what about our reaction to it? How many individuals spend time constantly in worry because of the situation? How many of individuals have, have really been anxious about what the world is going to be? Perhaps later this year, or perhaps next year, or perhaps in days to come. What will things look like? How will we react I would remind you that Paul told the Philippians to be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He told them that just after he reminded those individuals, who, by the way, were probably highly associated with the Roman Empire, that they were citizens of heaven, not on this earth. And the same thing needs to be told to us. There's a relevance that helps us to deal even with the anxieties that we face. And Jesus reminded us of that in the Sermon on the Mount. Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? God is the one who cares for us. God is the one to whom we must go. And what a blessing it is for us to have Scripture that provides that direction to us. So we have these three primary pillars that support our faith. The concept of God's existence, the concept that Jesus is the Son of God, and the concept of the inspiration of the Bible. What I want us to do next in this study is to move from inspiration to the church that the Bible describes. I believe that we can identify that church. And Scripture tells us what it takes for us to be a member of it. It tells us how that church worships. It tells us what that church does. And it tells us what our obligations to it are.